Hey there, Dogtown listeners. This is your host, Tony. I'm here with Robin and our guest today. I'll let him introduce himself. I'm Shams, a.k.a. The Homeless Hero. I'm an advocate and activist for homeless New Yorkers and homelessness throughout the city. My primary goal is to end homelessness. I believe it could be ended. And uh, I'm working with a variety of organizations locally and nationally to uh for that specific specific objective. Uh, I came to prominence, I guess you could say, as the homeless hero um, after what is known as the Lucerne controversy, which centered on uh, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, making a decision to move us from the Lucerne Hotel to another hotel in Manhattan because he was caving into pressure uh, from uh, minority uh, members of the community who were opposed to hotels in their community. And um, with community uh, partners, long-term residents like Corinne Lowe, uh, who co-founded a group called uh, Upper West Side for Upper West Side Open Hearts Initiative, we were able to uh, not only push back against the mayor and ensure that we stayed for the duration of the time that uh, this this uh, program with hotels uh, are being used to prevent from COVID, uh, from the spread of COVID, we, um, we pushed back. But more importantly, what we did was we created a new model for how community engagement should take place when you're dealing with a homeless population in a community, whether temporarily or long-term. But I think what stands out in our model was that we also, through volunteers uh, supported through Open Hearts, we established, it, we established services on site in, in cooperation with Project Renewal, the shelter provider, who had their services come on site, something that's unheard of in the shelter system. Oh, wow. Corinne is also on the call. So Corinne, can you tell us about its Upper West Side Open Hearts? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here with you. So, um, you know, what Upper West Side Open Hearts became is really because of the collaboration between the community members and Sham. So, you know, when we started, we... It wasn't it wasn't anything. It was just neighbors who were saying like we were hearing really negative things that people were saying about having shelters in our area. And we were like, guys, it's a pandemic. Like, we're so happy that these empty hotels can be used to keep people safe. Like, we're so glad that, you know, that can help people, you know, um, be protected and save lives. You know, so we just really wanted to welcome people with open arms. And so we went out and, you know, Drew, drew chalk messages that were welcoming people. And we put together welcome kits with, you know, different toiletries and stuff inside. And Shams, you know, heard about one of these events and got in touch with us. Um, and that was when he really said, you know, I, the way he said, he was like, yeah, the chalk on the floor is cute, but you know, we need more, <laughs> we need more than that. So he said, you know, this is like, it's great that there's people who want to help us, but what we really need is, you know, we need, we need more services and we need more community connections. And, you know, I want to talk about, I've been trying to make things better and I don't feel like anyone's listening to me. And so by then getting together between the neighbors who were more than happy to have the shelters there and the people who are living in the shelters and building those relationships, then we were able to find out, all right, what if people need. And it was like, all right, people want 
to be able to talk to faith leaders. So we'll get, you know, some faith leaders to come and go on walks with people. People need AA meetings. We'll get a volunteer to do AA meetings. And then it exactly as Sham said, it built where it wasn't just the community doing that. It then brought the service provider up to the next level because then they saw, oh, wow, this is going so well. And the guys are responding so well to this. We should be doing more. And so, you know, they were being held accountable by it not just being people like Shams inside the shelter asking for it. But now the community who was supporting them and we, we had their backs. We were the ones saying, no, like Project Renewal is doing a good job and they should be here and stop trying to kick them out and stop trying to sue the city to kick them out. But also we want you to take better care of people and here's what we want you to do. And so it was those joint forces um, created stronger advocacy, both within that shelter and then, you know, with the city at large. And that's why, you know, now we've um, transitioned together to doing a lot of citywide advocacy around homeless rights, which Shams can tell you more about. Corinne, I am just, first of all, I'm very surprised. Well, not really a surprise because even here in LA, we do have that problem where, Sometimes people in the community will complain about, um, you know, homeless people being housed in apartment buildings next to them or, you know, being put in houses next to them. And it's just I'm always trying to figure out what is it that us as advocates, what can we do? And I, you know, I heard your great options and, you know, saying showing up to places and educating people on the importance of, you know, projects like these. But how do we get more people in the community to not their first thought be like, you know what, I'm going to sue the city. Why is the city, you know, putting this like, how do we get people to be more compassionate and see that, you know, this is for the greater good. This is um, helping people. And how do we get them to engage in being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I don't think we fully have the answer, but I think our model, the way we approach it is that it's two things. So one, it's, trying to minimize the influence of those. There's going to be a few people who frankly are prejudiced, who are misinformed and who don't want to change, even if you're going to inform them. And so you want to minimize their impact. And the way you do that is by making sure that elected hear from the people who do want shelters there and who do want to help and be part of the solution. And so, you know, I think that it runs counter to like sort of people's instincts because what happens typically in communities is the people who are thinking with their pocketbooks, they're like, let's raise money to hire a lawyer because I don't want my property prices to go down. So they organize, they get on the community board meetings and they start calling their electeds and they make noise, right? And so what we realized is we had to teach the people who were folks, right, who were going to like bake brownies and quietly drop them off at the shelter, that they needed to be loud too, right? They needed to be in the press. They needed to be going to the community meetings because that wasn't what their instinct is because they actually just wanted to help. So they weren't thinking, how do I, you know, lobby electeds, right? But we realized like, okay, in order to minimize influence this other group, the electeds need to hear from you that there's this other constituent within their communities. And when that happened, then we saw elected officials who were not outspoken about this joined by our side and march with us because they all they care about is where is my constituency on this, right? So once they started hearing from people, then they they started responding to that. So that's the the first thing is just, you know, the way you minimize their influence is by organizing yourself in a public way. And it means thinking about things that the open-hearted people typically don't think about. They don't think about what's our media strategy, right? They think more about like, 
hey, let me buy some bulk, you know, soap, right? They don't, so, so, you know, it's, it's directing that, that great energy to say, yes, do that, but also, you know, let the media know that you're doing that. Or also, you know, put out a newsletter to your email list that says, you know, here, call your electeds and, you know, let them know that you support this. And then the second thing is, can you change hearts and minds, especially for people that are in the middle? And I think there's two things that we have found that works. The first thing is you dispel this idea that the unhoused are this amorphous, threatening body that you can dehumanize and other. And you do that by creating personal connections, whether in person or over Zoom, with people who are actually shelter residents. And so one of our tools that we use is something called a free store. And we do these free stores both because it's actually great for the people in the shelters. It's a way that you can mobilize like, all right, people have a bunch of stuff that they might not necessarily need in this wealthy community. And, you know, we bring it out and we organize it and we set it up like a store. So it's really nice and it feels really orderly, but everything's free. And we invite shelter residents to come shop. But it's a tactic actually, because we get neighbors to come volunteer and they meet shelter residents and they have conversations and they help them find the right pair of jeans and they help them, you know, get the soap that they need and they find out what they need and they learn about them as human beings. And when we have those events, that little old lady who never thought of herself as an activist, suddenly she's holding a sign at our next march, right? Because she's become activated by, you know, having these one-on-one personal connections. And for the people who aren't quite ready to come out to that, you create these, you know, during the COVID area, it was these Zoom opportunities. And so, you know, we found, I can remember this one Zoom meeting where it was a community board meeting and it was in the downtown where because of the legal action uptown, they were thinking about moving the Lucerne residents downtown. And now the community board downtown was saying, we don't want them here, right? And people were saying these horrible things about people in shelters, these very dehumanizing things. And I asked them to have Shams speak on that community board meeting. And he spoke at the time he was still living in the Lucerne. And he was like, this is me. I'm Shams. I'm a person. And he said, you know, I'm here, you know, I, you know, I hear your concerns, but I want to let you know that there's a lot of things that can be done to minimize those concerns. You know, if we have the right services in the shelters, there's no reason it needs to be a disturbance to your community, et cetera, et cetera. And all the air was sucked out of this whole idea that you were going to make this out like it was a, a swarm of bees invading your neighborhood because it was people. And now you had a person right there, you know, face to face, you know, who's, who's a person who, you know, because, you know, he had some negative life circumstances and didn't have the luck that you had, you know, is dependent on the city for care, but it's still a human being, right? And so when you you do that, when you make people kind of actually confront that, you know, I don't get to live in la-la land, that I can just, you know, pretend that, this, that, that there aren't human beings' lives at stake, and I can just be like, move them someplace better, and then you get real specific, and you're like, all right, what are you saying? Do you want them to go back to congregate shelters? Do you just want them moved to somebody else's neighborhood? Come talk to the shelter residents and find out, you know, what's actually better for them, right? Um, And we have found there's a lot of people who were able to be the angry NIMBYs when they could pretend that there weren't people involved who either came over to our side or just piped down once they found out that, okay, there's real people's lives at stake. Let me add to that. Um, so, you know, uh, Corinne's perspective is, is, is accurate and, you know, but there's another aspect that I just want to add on to. 
Um, because one, I think the most important dynamic, I mean, people have been drawn through this for years, but you haven't seen the impact that you have seen um, until the Lucerne, which is why we're talking now. Um, the idea of nimbyism is not new. It's not new throughout the country. Um, the ideas of, you know, uh, people coming to help the homeless is not new. You have plenty of organizations throughout the United States and the world that is engaged in that. I think what, oh, supersonic, JJ Fad, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so same. So, <laughs> so I think what's different here in our experience is um and we we're not going to discount this either um one the lucerne hotel has me that had me in there mm-hmm. and i'm just not new to uh to agitating to activating although i didn't want to but i think what um corinne tapped into which was important in the initial uh days um were open hearts you know First of all, one of the most important things that they did was they asked us before all of the press stuff. They said, well, what do you guys need? What do you guys want? That was the most important thing. They didn't come um, and try to impose what they thought we needed. They listened mm-hmm. to us and they catered to what we said we wanted. Right. That was the first conversation. Um, secondly, by listening, they were able to understand that this is the way you need to approach things. Uh, that's specifically with me. So one of the things that I was adamant about, and they are adamant about, is no one wants to, to us. No one wants to be part of some white savior thing. Mm. They don't want to be white saviors, and we don't need no damn white savior. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think what Corinne tapped into, which is unique, is the ability to say, "Well, look." Why don't you speak for yourself? You know, you guys, just because you're homeless don't mean you you don't have a brain or don't mean you can't articulate yourself and speak to the issues. And I think one of the real unique things that changed the narrative was the ability um, for what was, was the brilliance of her being able to say, here, Shams, take the mic. And from that perspective, I know as a directly impacted person as she demonstrated in the first community in that uh, well, was the second community board meeting on the issue with the downtown group by me speaking I was able to change their minds and they became like a more supportive of us than even the city agencies that was also on the meeting um, and that's been the way things have been um, throughout this whole deal, even now, you know, the real focus is not on these groups that come and say, we're going to do good. That's great. That's needed. But it's really also those directly impacted people like myself, Larry Thomas and others who literally stood up risk retribution and put ourselves on the line, you know, in order to uh, work with groups with, with open hearts and and others to affect the change that that we were able to uh, effect and are uh, continuing to do to this day. Were these hotels, was this just, uh, were you guys expected to stay in here during the pandemic or was this going to be supposed to be something that was going to go on until, you know, there was an option for permanent housing? These hotels were secured uh, through uh, FEMA as part of a way to combat uh, the spread of COVID. And Corinne, I'll let you speak to this too. Um, we wanted to, um, first of all, let's understand that when uh, COVID first hit, 
you know, every, the, the, the entire country was confused and given misinformation and stuff. We didn't know how to deal with it, combat it or anything like that. But horribly, our mayor here in New York City, de Blasio, Bill de Blasio, didn't heed the warnings or listen to professionals, whether from the medical community or the activist community who were saying that people that are in jails and people in, in, in shelters and congregate setting had a higher chance of spreading um, COVID. So at the time when they were telling people to quarantine, stay home, they were still kicking us out into the streets. You know, as a policy, we, we're not allowed to be in the shelter from like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Yeah. And so we were the only ones that you would see in the streets and other people that were experiencing homelessness in the streets. But we couldn't quarantine because these congregate settings might have 30, 40, 50 beds that are three feet apart, not six feet apart. We didn't have the, th the basic things that they said would protect you from the virus. We didn't even have that. So we didn't have sanita uh, hand sanitizer. We didn't have soap in the dispensers. Supplies were short and we, well, masks wasn't even required at the time. So we were at that time, Corinne, correct me if I'm wrong, the mortality rate was 67 percent higher in the congregate shelters than all of New York City um, during its most deadliest time period when they had so many deaths that they had to keep them in refrigerated trucks. They couldn't even bury them. They buried temp they had temporary mass graves on Hearts Island, what we call Potter's Field, where they just threw the bodies there because this is how much people were dying. Mm -hmm. But yet in the congregate shelter, it was 67% higher, the mortality rate, which gives you some indication of how dangerous that environment was. And the mayor, although activist organizations and, and lawyers and, and health professionals and even the CDC wanted to uh, depopulate these, air, these, these, these environments, the mayor refused to do it initially. So it took, I can, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, Corinne, it took two months from the initial recommendations for the mayor to finally say, I'm going to move the people that are in shelters and, and in the streets into hotels. Yeah. Right now, I feel like he's repeating the same mistakes over again mm -hmm. because now he's trying to move people back when, you know, less than 30% of people who are shelter residents have been vaccinated. The only, they can only confirm 14%, but they say they might've gotten vaccines other places, right? Um, and the Delta variant is surging and they're trying to cram everybody back to congregate shelters. And so I think exactly to the question that Tani asked, it was like, our question was, you had a year. Why didn't you spend that time getting every single person who was in a hotel into permanent housing? So nobody had to move back. Why are there still thousands of people's 
in people in these hotel rooms and you're now trying to move them back to congress shelters like that just doesn't make sense you have them in hotel rooms they were living independently you know behind a door that closes and locks right so they're ready they're housing ready you know we we, we don't like that phrase because we think it should be a housing first strategy but if you believe mm-hmm. that you have the evidence now that they're housing ready why aren't you giving them a key to an apartment that is cheaper by the way in new york city it's 50 percent of the cost for them to get them their own apartment versus to pay for them to be in shelters. Um, And it just shows how committed we are to criminalizing and dehumanizing people that we'd rather pay twice as much to keep people in a congregate setting, 50 beds on a floor, you know, rather than get people apartments, you know, where they can actually really get back on their feet. So it's exactly what you're saying. We really think every single person who was in a hotel should have gone directly to permanent housing. And instead, the city is repeating those same mistakes and trying to reopen congregate shelters when it's just not safe. Yeah. And, you know, we're so far ahead of where, like activism wise, um, together, like as a collaboration, we're so far ahead of what, you know, when you speak to what can we do in other places like mm-hmm. California and stuff, we didn't just, as Corinne was saying, we didn't just, or, or they didn't just come and do the free store and hand out, you know, goodies. You know, that that was great. They didn't just come and, and, uh, and do services on site, you know, whether life skill training classes or yoga and, and fitness classes and, and other uh, beautiful things. But we understood that there were other aspects of trying to uh, uh, um, engage, whether it was with media, um, political officials, and even moving and changing legislation, which you have so many organizations that were involved, but we utilize the attention that we were seeing to push those issues more. So much much so that uh, Corinne and I hosted the first of its kind mayoral candidates forum. So we took advantage. Yes. I logged on to that. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yes. And that's something that we did because we understood that whoever's going to be the next mayor, we would like them to really know the issues. And instead of organizations and other people who are not really impacted, directly impacted by homelessness, asking the questions and devising the questions, we let directly impacted people speak so and ask questions that was pertinent to them. Um, so those type of initiatives were good. And then even now with what we have um, during July Homeless Rights Month is, is, is extremely important because we saw the mayor, as, as Corinne said, repeating the mistakes of the, mm. past, of the past. You know, we were successful in fighting the mayor um, up until uh, uh, recently. Um, but we had to we were always trying to make it a broader issue so that all of the people that were in we're talking over 9000 people who are in hotels would get wow. protection. So some of the other things that we've we've done was we've supported um, a bill called Intro 146, um, which raises the shelter vi- vouchers from a, such a low amount as, as it currently is, where. It's like twelve eighty five for a single adult, which like try doing a zap, a, you know, a street easy or, a, you know, a, a whatever the other real estate searching for, you know, an apartment in uh-huh. Manhattan or New York City for twelve eighty five. So yes, a so shelter voucher, can you, uh, you can explain that that's a voucher for it's a rental uh, subsidy voucher for someone moving out of shelter and into kind of a permanent 
independent exactly. housing. And so the okay. way it works is the voucher has a certain amount mm-hmm. and the, um, that amount is the, is the dollar value, the rental value of the apartment that you can move into. Then you pay 30% of whatever the cost yeah. is. And then the subsidy, or sorry, you pay 30% of your income towards yeah. the cost. So, you know, if you're really low income, you pay very little. As your income grows, you pay more and the city pays the rest. So when it says the voucher is 1285, you can't find a $2,000 apartment and say, let me use use the rest. Yeah. You have to find a twelve eighty five apartment. And again, this is when the actual cost of being in a shelter is thirty five hundred dollars a month, right? Mm-hmm. And they're giving vouchers for twelve eighty five. So this legislation, intro one forty six, actually passed um, to raise the the value of the voucher up to fair market rate. That's and right. right now, what's infuriating to us is the mayor is sitting on it and refusing to implement it. While meanwhile, moving people back to shelters. And oh, it literally, if you just put this into effect right now there would be 170,000 more apartments that would be available on the market Whoa. for these vouchers. Oh my God. That's so awful. Uh, um, currently at the current rate, there's less than 600 apartments of that would, that would accept it. So you have wow. tens of thousands of New Yorkers who hold the voucher, the city Feb's voucher, but they, it's like worthless paper right oh now. Oh my God. So, um, Corinne, tell, tell them about the action that just took place on Brian Lear's show. Yeah, oh, yeah. So we just, um, you know, we've been building up towards this all during Homeless Rights Month to really center and focus the need to immediately implement Intro 146 because we're like, it's morally unconscionable to be moving people who are holding this voucher, this piece of paper that says they're entitled to an apartment, and you're moving them back to a congress shelter because you haven't made sure that this Thing can actually access an apartment. So we've been building up to that part of, you know, Shams called for this March on Gracie Mansion, the Homeless Heroes March on Gracie Mansion. We did mm-hmm. that, um, you know, last last weekend. And so then there was that big awareness. Is, of, is Gracie um, Mansion the mayor's house? Oh, yeah. Sorry, that's where the mayor lives. We have um, the Getty yeah. House here in Los Angeles and we go there often. What is it yeah. called? Debbie? Our mayor lives in the Getty House. and Right. And so, yeah, yeah here it's Gracie Mansion. So we <laughs> called for our three demands are immediate implementation of intro 146, pausing the transfers to congregate shelters and stopping street sweeps of unsheltered individuals. So we did a big march focused on those demands. And so then on every Friday, the mayor goes on this radio show called, it's the Brian Lair show. And and they have this segment called Ask the Mayor. So we uh, had people call in and, you know, and ask about why can't you immediately implement intro 146. And so the mayor actually said on that show for the first time, he said, oh, I didn't know that I could implement it immediately. (laughs) I'll look into that and I'll get back to you next week. And so we're right now in where we feel like we got that opening and we're trying to amp up the pressure because we're like, all right, let's make him stay true to those words. He says he's going to give us an answer next week. Let's make sure he's hearing from everybody that we all want immediate implementation of intro 146. And we hope that that's going to be something we can celebrate at the end of Homeless Rights Month, that at least we will get that legislation. Yeah, I hope so too. Did he just forget like this mayor this mayor and this is going to the real issues mm-hmm. is that and these is where it may correlate to what yeah. goes on in cali i talked to a lot of people now throughout the country and there's so many similarities which i didn't even know mm-hmm. about um but really a lot of what you see with the homeless pop- homeless population uh, uh increasing and the lack of of um initiatives that will end it is rooted in this mayor's ability, a desire to number one, uh, 
uh, um, allow big real estate developers to come in throughout in different parts mm-hmm. of the community to build these luxury buildings, which automatically leads to the displacement of people. Um, most of these developments are going in distressed places, um, well, formerly distressed places like Harlem, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, you know, South Bronx. These, these places that once were like no man's lands are now like prime real estate. Wow. So the mayor has given so many tax abatements and different things to encourage them to come. But he 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 didn't do anything that would benefit the long-term members of the community. So when these people are displaced because the the property values go up, they're unable to afford the rents, then where are those people going to go? So what happens is there's two things that exist for, for, for us. That's the prison industrial complex and the shelter industrial complex. Mm-hmm. So this has been going on since uh, the 70s with Mayor Koch, but it's increased every year. So under Giuliani, what he did was he did his broken windows policy and started criminalizing people for quality of life issues, claiming public safety was was a major issue. And his criminalization led to mass incarceration. Um, On the other side, we're still dealing with displacement. It also led to an increase in uh, people experiencing homelessness, families, children, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, people thought that having a Democratic mayor, things would change. A mayor spoke of tale of two cities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And anything actually it's increased under this Democratic mayor, Bill de Blasio. So he spoke a good thing about tale of two cities and some of the other initiatives. But everything that he has done has actually failed to be implemented and has actually and the things that he's done has made the situation worse. But we have to understand the connections to big real estate and the need uh, or the desire to facilitate that at the expense of of New York's most vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then the other side of that, which Corinne could speak to, if you don't mind, is the fact that you're creating segregation throughout the city. You're segregating people. I mean, his idea is to build, to maintain, to sustain the shelter industrial complex by building over 90 shelters, 90 shelters where people will be housed single adults at the, at the cost of $3,500 a month, families up to $6,000 a month. This is ludicrous because that amount of money, I can live on the Upper West Side very comfortably, you know, so to keep me in a congregate setting on a bed surrounded by 49 other people, and, and it's, it's just, it's criminal. Yeah. And, and these are the things. And so what we do have to look at, and I mentioned uh, the, the connection to big real estate, but what we really have to look at in New York City in particular is how the, the, the population what is the demographic? It's nine, oh, what, 90, over 90 percent are black and brown. Mm-hmm. 90 percent are black and brown. So with of unhoused res- or sheltered residents. Yeah. Sheltered yeah. Residents. Mm-hmm. So you can't discount the racial yes. uh, no, no, implications. No, no. So what I try to also speak to is. That And we don't try to uh, take it out of the conversation of police violence or uh, education inequities and health inequities. And thank goodness, the, the, well, I got to say it like that, the COVID pandemic highlighted that. There was no getting around that. Mm-hmm. But the same thing persists amongst the homeless population. So uh, generally what we're talking about is systemic 
instructional and institutional and uh, 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 um, um, what's the other one, Corinne? I say, I'm, I miss them up. Structural racism. <laughs> you know, they all have their differences. And sometimes I, I get it like that and sometimes I forget. But we have to look at those dynamics because that is what influences policy, that influences decisions. Mm-hmm. And what happened is that New York's policy has codified this uh, the uh, the uh, the the oppression of black and brown people. These policies actually keep us down in a subservient position. And um, if we didn't or don't attack these these issues, it will get very worse. And what you will see is a lot more blood in the streets mm-hmm. um, and a lot more you know uprisings in New York City. Um, in the long run, because you 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 know the the myth of homeless people being you know down and out people that are on drugs or on or mentally ill those are myths. That's not mm-hmm. what causes homelessness. So you have re- many people um, uh, who are not really gonna gonna take this in the long run. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, there's. Oh, I go ahead, Tony. I have so right. many thoughts about L.A. versus New York. Um, you know, oh, yeah. we share so many similarities. It's kind of what's happening here in Los Angeles. You know, we we had hotels open up um, at st- uh, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, took them a while to do it. And now p- people are slowly being moved out. But for Los Angeles, you know, we don't have a shelter system and are um, not in the same way we have, you know, 20,000 less beds than people that are sleeping outside. So we have, um, the most visible homelessness in the country and, um, really large encampments and, and people that are, you know, living like on the streets in a park, um, you know, on the beaches. Right. So that that's our government and our leaders are literally, you know, allowing people to re re-experience homelessness after being housed for a year up to a year and it's just um and it's a thing i remember them saying a year ago that they weren't going to do that that was our main goal and i heard you all say that it's like you had a year to do this right um the other thing too they're doing here in la is they're taking away basic uh they at the beginning of the pandemic they brought out uh, porta potties and hand washing stations to encampments, just like basic services and, and um, you know, uh, basic needs that we've been asking for and advocating for for years before the pandemic. And now they're all gone, right? So they're taking them all out of the neighborhoods. And Delta variant is still around. They, it, those were major services. It doesn't even like, it's not a huge cost. And we have a mayor that's, on his way to India <laughs> to become the ambassador to India and, um, and who, you know, just two months ago told us that he was going to invest a billion dollars into this, um, crisis. And then we have a city council that a month ago or no, not even a month ago, 10, 15 days ago passed, um, approved a law that would essentially a sit sleep lie, um, ordinance where it would make it illegal to like, so creating anti-homeless zones throughout the city. So it's, you know, we share a lot of the same battles, um, especially at the local politics level. Yeah. And it's so infuriating because if what you want is to not have people unsheltered on the street, 
then provide people the Mm -hmm. services and the safe place to live that they need so that they're not going to want to do that. It's like, there is, there is a win-win. There is a win-win. It just means respecting the basic human needs and dignity of people Mm -hmm. experiencing homelessness. Right. But if you're offering the alternative of, you know, be crammed into these, you know, um, congregate shelters where it's, you know, really unsafe and unsanitary versus staying on the street, then people are going to be on the street. And then you, you make homeless people, the enemy when really the enemy is your city's policies. that If I could ask, um, if, if I could ask you guys a quick question about these hotels, because here for us, uh, when, well, it was called Project Room Key. Um, it was, they mainly started it for people who were at risk of getting COVID. So that's who they wanted to put in this hotel. So I just kind of want to know who exactly, you know, got a hotel room, who was this just a, was it, was there an age requirement? What was the requirement to, you know, be put in this hotel during the pandemic? Well, besides experiencing homelessness. Well, first of all, um, let's go to the distinction between New York and California. The one distinction that we do have is that New York has a right to shelter policy. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge distinction because no one really can be on the streets if they want a place to stay. Um, The quality of that place is, is, you know, you can talk about that. But when it with COVID, Um, What it was, was initially we got offered the opportunity to choose between staying in the congregate setting or going to uh, uh, a shelter. So it was our choice. And it was originally offered to people that were in the streets. It wasn't offered to those of us that were in the shelter. But what happened was the mayor did this big sweep of the trains and they they put in this curfew. And when he flush people into the hotels, many of those people were not used to being under the control of a shelter provider and under going through checkpoints with security and stuff like that. So many of them, although having their own room, you would have thought would have been a a great alternative to sleeping on a train or a park bench, Many of them returned right back to the streets. And so when that percentage after two weeks went right back down, those hotel rooms after he cut a big deal with the hotel association to secure them, when those hotel rooms were empty, then he decided to reach out to us, to, yeah. to those of us who were in the shelter and, and, and offer us that opportunity. And, um, you know, FEMA, let's keep in mind that FEMA originally was paying 75 percent of the bill. So it was attractive. Um, I think one of the reasons why now it's 100 percent, right? Now it's 100 yep. percent after Biden got into office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, another thing I want to look at with California is the fact that Cal- uh, uh, Maxine Waters just sponsored a bill to address homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I think that bill should be utilized by people across the country. I'll have to look into that. We kind of, we don't, I we pay a lot of attention to our city leaders and county leaders. And I kind of, I forget about like, people uh, in different, in the federal level. That's interesting. There's already so much going on on the county level that is uh, wrong that, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes we do forget that they, you know, they, they are bigger there is a bigger fish, you know, and yeah. And and I'm not saying like we can talk about this, but sometimes we have to center these conversations and use our people power in order to force mm-hmm. the issues. And what we've what we we're actually doing now, um, and we kind of wasn't able to take advantage of uh, through the Lucerne uh um 
situation and initially was we let the politicians during the election year pit us against each other. Mm-hmm. So the fight became, you know, groups like Open Hearts versus NIMBYs. And that kind of allowed or, or vice versa. And that kind of allowed the politicians to get away with doing things the way they normally do it. And it wasn't until, but we pushed so hard that we changed the narrative and we we kind of got the support that we needed to get. Unfortunately, you know, it kind of leaves us a little divided, but learning from that experience, we're now um, engaged with, sometimes it's just an educational thing. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. some people, like homeless, people that are homeless have been so othered that we just know them as the people that are that you pass by on your way to work. And we don't really know who they are and their, their, and their stories. So with me standing up, I am that guy who slept on a park bench. I'm mm-hmm. that guy who slept on a train station. I'm that guy who had uh, uh, who abused alcohol at some point. I'm that guy who uh, who dealt with mental illness. Yeah, me, the homeless hero, Shams, you know, <laughs> the hip hop pioneer, the academic star, the, you know, yeah, these are regular people. But if you just walk by them, you'll never know that that's who Shams was. You might, you know, look down on me, might, you know, just ignore me. But what we we understand now is that they have codified the things that negatively impact uh, people that experience in homelessness. And we have connected with various organizations um, directly impacted people. We have all come together to not just, you know, talk about the issues, not just, you know, do a march and a protest. Mm-hmm. We are also petitioning our local, our state and our federal leaders. We understand that we have to attack this from all sides, you know? So no, it's not just about, you know, coming, showing up and giving out coffee and donuts to us or socks, you know, those things are great and, and definitely welcome and needed. It's not just about, you know, making sure that we are able to pitch a, pitch a tent or sleep on this bench unobstructed. No, it's about getting housing. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, there's only one way to solve homelessness, and that is through housing. So now let's see where this money is going. In New York City, it's $3.2 billion dollars. How come homelessness is going into up the shelter care? system, right? Into, into the shelter system. Yeah. And this is just a, uh, yeah, yeah. so it's like, where is this money going that we're not able to increase the house and stuff? When you look at some, and let me tell you, can do a lot with three billion. The money is there. Yeah. It's not that the money's not there. They're literally paying $3,500 a month for a single adult. And think about it. This is where the human rights violations come into play. Yeah. You have over 15,000 children. Think about that number. 15,000 children who are in the shelter system. Yeah. In New York City. That's children. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's such a policy failure. And it just like you're saying that the answer is so easy, but I. I really appreciate the way that you all talk about them. They've codified this. They've turned this into the shelter industrial complex. They've kind of changed the public perception and all those things. Um, I I want to kind of get back to uh, Homeless Rights Month, but also one thing that I find really fascinating, um, you guys have brought it up, and of course how we found you is just 
the use of the media. So how you are engaging with the media public, like how do you leverage um, that into your advocacy? Because you, you've mentioned that that's super important. So, well, when I was homeless, I read a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when I, was like, I was homeless at 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do when it got to the point where it was difficult to go to school every day was I would stay in the bookstores and I would read, 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 read book after book. But one of the, the um, persons uh, that I admired at that time, don't fault me, <laughs> is Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh. And I like the fact that he used what, what he called the outflank strategy um, when he would win his wars and, okay. and get people to surrender. So in our strategy, it's more like an outflank strategy. We're going to attack. I shouldn't say this publicly. De Blasio might watch <laughs> no, it. De Blasio might it. <laughs> well, you give us just the, the high level. Yeah. yeah. So with media, I'm, from my perspective, if Corinne gets back on, she can give mm -hmm. some more. Right, but um, what I did, what I, what, first of all, I was horrified at the depiction of, of the people, mm -hmm. the men of the concern and other homeless uh, individuals throughout the Upper West Side, street homeless people and, and people in the other hotels. And a lot of what was coming out, the Lucerne name was the one they, they talked about. Mm -hmm. But most of what they said, even the people they were showing, we're not in the Lucerne. So the media was so uh, unprofessional, unethical in its portrayal. Yeah. And then they were showing people in extreme di distress during the height of COVID. And I, I just was horrified by that. And when it did show some of the people that I um, consider my peers and my friends in the Lucerne, I was just like, why would you do people like this? Like, like, where's your humanity? And so initially I would do things like I would approach the media and tell them, don't show nobody. You know, if you're mm -hmm. going to tell the story, you know, don't show close ups, don't show people faces. You know, people want a, a degree of privacy. You're homeless. You're going through something. You don't want to be on the news and, and get those calls from family members and stuff like that. So, you know, have some respect. Um, but when, uh, Corinne and open hearts decided to do, and I, initially I wasn't trying to be public. I advocated as the homeless hero to mm -hmm. hide who I was, um, um, because to speak out, to speak to press and to fight the system from within, uh, you, it's automatic retribution, you know, and they'll ship you off to where you, to Siberia. <laughs> so, um, which is, because we do have our Siberia in New York is called Far Rockaway. Yeah. You will be unheard of after that. So I developed the homeless hero to represent all the homeless people, um, not just myself. And I never really spoke to my own personal issues, but I spoke to the broader issues that we all face as the homeless hero. And, um, you know, when Corinne and them decided to do a march, he asked me to speak a march on Gracie Mansion, which I think was September 7th. And initially I was like, nah, no way. If you want to read my statement, you can, but I'm not getting in the camera. Mm -hmm. You know, I just didn't want to do it. And I was so against it until I bumped into a friend, a, a fellow hip hop pioneer by the name of JDL from the legendary Cold Crush Brothers. And I saw him and he was homeless. He was in the streets. He was assigned to Bellevue, but preferred the streets to the congregate shelter. Mm -hmm. And this is, a, he's a bit older than me with serious health issues. 
And he was like, it's too dangerous. I'm going to stay in the streets. And when I walked away from him, I, I just was in tears. And this is several days leading up to the march. And I was just, I was fighting myself because I really didn't want to be known. But then that was one of those moments where I said, I got to do something that's bigger than myself. I got to, you know, I got to speak for JDL and the thousands of people who are going through these same experiences because it's not just me. Mm -hmm. And that's what made me speak at the initial uh, March on Gracie Mansion. And Corinne passed that mic. And I always say it was like back in the days when we were on the stage and someone like JDL would give me the mic and JDL, who was more prominent, used his privilege as the most prominent MC to give me some light. Just him passing me the mic made me look like I was a superstar because I was on stage with, with JDL. So what Corinne and them did was they used their privilege Right. Their yeah. access and instead of trying to speak for us, allowed us to speak for ourselves. And that I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm not new to entertainment. I'm a hip hop pioneer. Um, I'm also in the film business. I've produced documentaries and I was part of a huge story in the 1980s. Um, I'm not going to get into the details, yeah. but I'll tell you that my friend, a fellow, you know, my best friend who actually took me off the streets um, ended up in a shootout with six out of 30 New York City cops. In 1986, he shot six out of them, escaped unharmed and led the country on one of the biggest manhunts in history. Mm -hmm. And so I remembered when the press tried to demonize him and I end up taking, I don't want to say take control of the press, but I end up influencing the press and changing the narrative. So today he's recognized as a folk hero to most who come across the story. So using the same tactics, I felt like this is what we need to do mm -hmm. in terms of those of us that are experiencing homelessness. And, and what, so one of the things that and, uh, along with open hearts, we're all together on this. So I don't want to make it look like it's just me, but what we did was we didn't want a narrative of the white savior that came to save the poor black souls. That was important. That's yeah. very important. We wanted to empower people like myself to be able to speak, Larry Thomas and others who spoke and show that, hey, we could be homeless, but we can also articulate ourselves, you know, and we can and 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 that sort of let them know uh, there's something we're missing. Like you you talk so eloquently. Many was like, can we talk to a real person that's experiencing homelessness? <laughs> Like, what the hell? <laughs> and in my mind, I'm saying, well, shoot, I probably got more more um, skin in this game than anybody else. having been homeless since I was 10 years old mm -hmm. and 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 in and, and the foster, foster care system, system since I was two years old. You know, I'm used to being moved around. And um, but it took a minute for them to realize that, you know, the 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 value uh, in um, in talking to directly impacted people, the value. Look at Corinne Lowe is is a, a, a economics professor at the esteemed Wharton School of Business. You know, and I'm the homeless guy from the South Bronx, right? But we're doing we're doing candidates forums together. You know, when we're talking and we're interacting, even when we're just in the streets and 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 just doing things you sort of forget that this is the homeless guy from the, the, the South Bronx, you know, uh, or this is the economics professor. You forget that. Why? Because it really doesn't matter. 
Like we can actually be in the same room and affect change. And this is what I think was special um, to the media. And, and I think that allowed them to see the human aspect of it. And in storytelling, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't want to give away too much, but in storytelling, <laughs> I'm just joking. In storytelling, I like to, ha- I, first of all, as an artist, as a performing mm-hmm. artist, for me, it was, it was at a disadvantage because I was so young, so people didn't take me serious back in the days. So what I used to have to do was extra thing to draw people into me as a personality and as a character. So I created a three-dimensional character in how I, I rapped and how I presented myself, even the way I moved and the way I dressed. You sort of like drew more interest into me beyond just my beats and rhymes. So in the same aspect in storytelling, you want three-dimensional characters. You want a, a, a story that has not just a main plot, but subplots as well. And those subplots come from the interaction of the protagonist with other people or even even the antagonist interacting with other people. So in this same dynamic, we are doing the same thing in how we articulate ourselves to the media and it's extremely effective, but it is definitely something that we know to do. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Wow. That is so, I'm really um, thinking about the 3D character. Wow. My brain is uh, thinking, going through some the gears are spinning, I guess, and how we can dig more into that into future conversations. So look at the homeless hero. The homeless hero is uh, is is um, is really coming from Joseph Campbell's uh, uh, um, Hill with a Thousand Faces, where we get uh-huh. the, the hero's journey from. Right. Hold on, let me define this. Um, where we get the hero's journey from. So when I, I came up with the name, I kept that in mind. And as the, on the hero's journey, you know, characters in this ordinary world get thrust into a different world, the world mm-hmm. of adventure. And at the end, you know, you know, it's meeting all types of people. stuff. but I looked at it like all people experiencing homelessness go through that same trajectory. And mm-hmm. hopefully the ideal is to or the climate should be us putting our key in the door, getting our own place and then going back to teach other people how to do the same thing. So there's also there was always that. We're going to control our narrative. We're going to make this story what we need it to be. We're going to define our de- destiny. That is really at the essence of what we're doing. And 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 I think, you know, um, I thank God, I thank the creator that we're very effective with it. And I think because this is just, this is something that resonates with people, no matter what side you're on, no matter whether you experience homelessness or not. I think it resonates. You could connect with a person that that has feelings. You could connect with a person that ha- that has been in distress, that has mental illness that, you know, you can and and, and it's still functional, you know? Mm-hmm. I just um, if I could add one small thing is just, I just think it's very powerful to hear you say that, because for me as a young person, in a lot of these uh, meetings that, you know, we do attend, uh, trying to advocate for, especially youth experiencing homelessness. It is hard sometimes when you're sitting in a room and everyone, you know, talks about, oh, I'm, I'm the director of this, or I'm this person, or I'm this person, these big meetings, and everyone has uh, huge accolades to their names, and you're just a young person who experienced homelessness and is trying to better the lives of others. So it is hard to be for me, it is sometimes it can get overwhelming to be in these meetings and see all these people and then also get the feeling that they're just looking at me as the um, 
as a you know as a young kid who's experiencing homelessness and that's all they will ever see me so I I'm very grateful to hear you say that because I'm like well that's definitely something that I can use to my advantage and Mm -hmm. and how you know in these rooms in this type of spaces whenever I'm in this type of spaces you know having that character and you know making sure you're grabbing people's attention and making sure they're hearing you and they're seeing you as a person and not just seeing you as a, you know, someone who experienced homelessness or someone who's currently experiencing homelessness, but seeing you as a human telling your story and in the way that you tell your story. So thank you for that. Yeah, I love it. I think that there's, you know, one thing that, you know, this podcast, a lot of the goal is to bring more voices and use it as a platform uh, to bring the stories in, right, in a different way. So uh, I think there's a lot of future, you know, you should come, we should have a, a meeting with, we have a youth board, a youth expert, expert board and speaking board. And I think we all have a lot of crossover in the future. And I, and I also just like, think it's good to have this relationship, even though LA and New York, obviously uh, we have different enemies, um, but we're going through the same common struggles, right? We heard that, you know, these policies are similar. You all have an inactive mayor. We have that too. You know, just having the relationships between um, Nor- uh, New York and LA is gonna, it builds our power in a different way. And it builds, it continues to build the story, continue the story. And then we can also share these tips and tricks. But I guess like to wrap it up, um, I let's, what are some things that people can do for July homeless or July homeless rights month? And, um, and how can they tap in, follow? What are, what are the good things? Um, that we should be spreading the word about. What I would say initially is I would say I would love to see you adopt July Homeless Rights Month. We want to make it a national thing. This is not about New York City. This is about people experiencing homelessness throughout the world. Yep. And um, as you noted, um, and Tony spoke to it, is that we all basically go through the same thing. And actually, it doesn't even matter if you're black or white. If you're homeless, you're kind of going to go through the exact same things, you know. So we can talk about demos. But the reality is that, you know, if we don't have people working with us um, and we don't have people advocating with us, you know, we're going to be stuck in this situation. Many of us die. The experience of homelessness Mm -hmm. is a health hazard. You know, um, whether you're in the shelter, in the streets, your health is negatively impacted. So I'm concerned. I'm in this fight because I care about people. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what color you are or what gender identity. I don't care about none of that. What I care about is your humanity. And so I would want to see you all adopt uh, July Homeless Rights Month, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And then if you wanted to do something um, before the close of the month, we can definitely I'll make sure you're looped into uh, further actions. But I would love for you to maybe get these youth together and let's speak to the youth and let's give something from our experience or let's share experiences um, because it doesn't have to be a New York to California thing, but it could be us connecting together and sharing experiences and, and just you know, trying to to um, uh, uh, inspire people mm-hmm. and empower people in a positive way. So that could be an action. Um, and then I would ask for you to look 
at your local leaders just on your own and, and to address issues specific to California. Look at some of the things that we're looking at. We're looking at developing a bill of rights for New York City, a homeless mm-hmm. bill of rights. You know, I don't know if California has one. I know it's all been proposed. Yeah. But, you know, um, go to Mark from uh, Invisible People yeah. and, and invite Mark in on the conversation uh, and, 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 and definitely raise the voices uh, or allow the voices to, to be expressed from directly impacted people mm-hmm. um, because um, many of them do want to be heard and, and connect them to uh, in, in resources that empower them. Mm-hmm. Um, in our case, next week we're doing, we have a huge, big, successful PR firm that's offering free, that's donating a webinar to directly impacted people to learn how to speak for themselves. Oh, and if, if you would like, if you have directly impacted people, I'll connect you so you oh, can. Absolutely. Yeah. That will, you know, that's such a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Talking to the press is not easy. Articulating yeah. yourself, getting your message out. I have a little background in storytelling, so I kind of know how to weave a conversation, mm-hmm. but the average person doesn't. And there's times when I'm so emotional over the situation that whatever knowledge I has go out the window and that, you know, but you know, so I'm always careful sometimes because I'm like, if I say what I really want to say, you know, it's mm-hmm. for people and you can't do that in certain situations. You, <laughs> the point is lost. You know, yeah. Yeah. But so these are things that we're doing and um, let's have a connection. Um, mm-hmm. See the organizations that are working, create a coalition. We we've created a coalition and we've joined coalitions to be a part of it. And I, I just want to say, and I know we've done we got to close, but <laughs> let me say this. I am. Um, I'm not the all, I'm not the expert. Like I can tell you everything about, about being homeless and in the street. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I got been doing this for quite some time. Right. But I really listen to people. I go in the streets. I talk to people all the time, even though I'm in my own place now. I talk to people all the time. I find out their stories. I'm I'm not a person that deals with substance abuse, unless you consider alcohol. Yeah, that, mm. that was the thing. But I listen to them. In other words, I say that like that because I don't know what it's like to be addicted to, say, heroin or to uh, uh, crack or to K2 or something like mm-hmm. that. So for me to kind of understand what the person is going through, I don't just assume I got to go listen to these people like, you know, why? What's going on? You know, I talk to them. I talk to shelter providers. What's what's wrong? Why is your shelter like this? Mm -hmm. What can we do better? I talk to uh, clinicians, medical professionals. I talk to privileged white people. I talk to the NIMBYs. I talk to everybody to try and figure out. What is it that we're dealing with? I read and study the the laws and the different things, you know, and I'm constantly on the Zooms where you have different organizations that provide information. And the more that I know, the easier it is to be able to have the right conversations Mm. and put it and frame it in a word, in a way, sorry, that makes sense. And so much so that, oh, we got to get Corinne. (laughs) Corinne, I'm sorry, I'm going to shut up right now. You got to get Corinne for Homeless Rights Month. They want to know what they could do. The first suggestion I said was for them to join us in this and maybe organize something so we can make it a national thing. We're connecting the coast, Corinne, and we'll get everything <laughs> in the middle. But I need you to tell them what they need to do for Homeless Rights Month. I'm going to tell them. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, we started this because it was a period of time where mayors all over the country were violating mm-hmm. homeless rights. And so we said, you know what, July is homeless rights <laughs> month. You know? And then it was funny, it's become a running joke that once we started it, now every time the mayor does something bad, we're like, imagine, and he's doing that during homeless rights month. Can you believe it? You know? Um, so, you know, we would love it. You know, we would love LA to also declare homeless rights month and for you guys to organize an action before the end of July. And, you know, whether it's some kind of whether it's a sleep out whether it's a march you know and to say you know what we're standing in solidarity with new york july is homeless rights month and we're asking other people to do that too so um i think that's a we we hope that that's something that'll get established and it'll be an annual thing that july is homeless rights month because it's like a great time to remind everybody that like these are human beings who have rights and when you go and you throw out somebody's stuff you're violating their rights, right? You do not have a right. It's like there is a protection against mm-hmm. search and seizure, right? You do not have a right to take somebody's stuff and throw it in the trash. Like you are violating somebody's mm-hmm. rights, you know? And so Shams and I have talked about trying to get New York to do like a homeless bill of rights, but like, that's really what this is about. It's about, you know, the, the supposedly inviolable rights of human beings in America. Um, and so, yeah, we'd love to see LA join oh in God, yeah. July homeless I, rights I have- with us. I have a, we have a coalition. I can run that um, idea past. I'm sure we would be very, people would be very excited. We have some big battles and fights this month, so might as well join in. Yeah. I can't believe that our uh, city council was trying to pass a sit, sleep, lie ordinance in homeless rights month. How did, why? Yeah. Exactly. How could they? they? Don't they know it's homeless rights month? Exactly. Um, And we have, you know, the cute little like profile picture, July homeless rights that we can send you guys. So yeah, we'd love to see this trend growing. uh, Will you guys do a little plug for your Twitters and other socials that people can follow? Well, yeah. So follow Shams. Shams is homeless hero on Twitter and Instagram. So homeless underscore hero. And on Facebook, he's the homeless hero. And uh, we're Upper West Side Open Hearts. So that's, you know, at UWS Open Hearts on Instagram and Twitter, you know, facebook.com slash UWS Open Hearts on Facebook. Um, we, have, we have a website, www.uwsopenhearts.org. And you can always email us at info at UWS um, openhearts.org. And we are, yeah, more than happy to hear from people around the country who are interested in uh coordinating on homeless rights events in your neighborhood. So we hope that uh, this will be a growing trend and we hope that municipalities will get the message that it's not just that, you know, homeless people are, are people whose rights should be protected, but they also have a broad community that cares about them and are supporting them. And, you know, we're not going to take it anymore. It's homeless rights month. It's time to clean up your act. Amazing. And the hashtag for this is July homeless rights. So hashtag July homeless rights. We're asking people to use that. Um, And if you go on Facebook and you search hashtag July homeless rights, you can add the filter to your Facebook profile. Oh, cool. I know that True Colors United is very involved in uh, youth homelessness stuff um, there in New York. But I just wanted to ask, um, do you guys have youth involved or or youth that are experiencing homelessness involved in? in, Let me tell you this, and I'll let Corinne go in on that. But I can tell you, youth have been involved from day one. They're the ones putting that chalk on the floor for us. They're the one helping us cook these damn marching with us. Um, Open hearts, um, I just got to be real. Their children are extremely active in everything that we do. They, They bring their children to nearly every event. 
And so young people are very active. I have students that speak to schools and students throughout the city um, over and over again, and they come out and support us as well. Um, in terms of youth homelessness, that is a huge focus, especially with what we, with, you know, I, I grew up as a, as, a, as a homeless kid from 10 years old. So I know the trajectory, although that was a different time period, but the experience is, is horrible for a young person um, not to really know how they're going to eat, how they're going to survive. And it leads to all types of other things. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're very much focused on youth homelessness as much as anything else, you know. And so um, we welcome any initiative to, to add to that conversation. Amazing. But go ahead, Corinne. Yeah, I know. Just what Shams said, you know, it's been there's been kids involved at all levels. You know, Shams has a little entourage of students that he's spoken to that he has influenced so much that they show up at all of his events and rallies, you know, and oh, wow. he really influenced them. These are going to be lifelong advocates for housing Love rights it. because he came and spoke to their class and they were so moved, you know, and really wanted to see how they could get involved. And so one of the things that we, you know, been saying is that we hate how people always say, you know, oh, you know, we can't have homeless here people because this is a neighborhood for families with children, you know? And yet we bring our kids to this event. You know, I bring my four-year-old and he's climbing all over shams and they're coloring together and, you know, whatever. And when you bring actual kids, kids have naturally have open hearts. Kids naturally have empathy. Kids naturally know that everybody deserves a home and a safe place mm -hmm. to live, right? So yeah. no, we reject that idea of using children as shields, you know, or rhetorical weapons to be anti-homeless. Um, and, you know, we say, get your kids involved in homeless rights because kids naturally care about these issues. And we've seen such an outpouring of support from the youth, from the youngest little kids who come and, you know, chalk at our events and hand out cookies at the free store to, you know, teenagers and college kids who, you know, are just so passionate about this issue and are leading, are the, the vanguard who are, you know, really pushing our elected officials and holding people accountable. Amazing. So incredible. Oh, we're, we're so thankful that we had this conversation so much, uh, so much information. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely inspired by Shams and I'm so excited to hear about the work that's happening in New York. And yeah, we're grateful for you all. Tony, anything yeah. else? Yeah, no, thank you guys uh, for coming on um, and staying even longer. Um, <laughs> definitely. I, yeah, I do have some friends there, you know, working within the homeless system, but I didn't realize how much different we are compared to LA. And um, it's definitely, you know, like you said, it's good to have, you know, coastal connections and to keep each other updated and letting you know each other know what's going on or what could benefit you know something could benefit something that maybe L well I don't know if Ella is doing anything that could benefit you guys but you know if that was ever the case sharing those resources or those that kind of information is definitely um and building these connections as well so you know you're not just advocating from one coast you're advocating for not just people in the U.S. but people in the world to know that you know, homelessness is a problem and it's not just the problem for people experiencing homelessness, but it's a problem for everyone. Then everyone needs to, you know, be able to learn that I, as a homeless person, as someone who's experienced homelessness, I experienced homelessness going through college. I didn't look like what the media portrays a lot of the time. I didn't, you know, I wasn't sleeping in, in tents or on the street. I was just a normal college student, but you didn't know that I was sleeping in my car. So it's, I like that we get to put this, uh, I want to make this a bigger national problem and put, you know, put, put an image to, you know, homelessness. That's not just, oh, when you think about LA's homelessness problem, it's not just, oh, you jumped straight to Skid Row and everyone 
there is doing drugs like you know like Shem was saying like you know not everyone is you know on this level of, of homelessness homelessness looks different on all sorts of levels mm-hmm. and i think it's important especially for people in communities like you know if we're trying to house people in apartments that you know you know you are moving potentially college students that you know don't have you know can't afford to live in dorms or can't afford to live in apartments and they just need um to you know they just need housing and that needs to mm-hmm. be available and people in the community can't protest that can't be suing the city you know when someone is trying to do the right thing and do the right by someone so thank you guys so much for you know being part of this conversation and coming on and you know we would also love to have you guys you know for future conversations and stuff like that yeah uh, yeah absolutely thank you all thanks for having us This podcast is produced by Lensco in partnership with Safe Place for Youth and funded by the Department of Mental Health Innovations 2.